right, we are here with Shamel Maynard, the treasurer and CIO of the University of Miami for part two, part two of our vlogs. Let's start off with a topic that is at the front of a lot of people's minds, which is virtual AGMs. We're actually doing a webinar this month with some panelists. And so we're thinking through questions like, how long should it be? What should you include from a content perspective? What should you exclude from a content perspective? What should the general flow of it be between macro sections, funds, portfolio companies? Should you include video? Should you not? Should it be pre-recorded? Should it all be live? These are some of the things that a lot of GPs are thinking about. So I would love to hear the customer's perspective on the consumer's perspective here of this content. Can you give, maybe before we dive into virtual AGMs, give the high level about University of Miami, what you do from a day-to-day basis, and then diving into, you know, how many of you attended this year and then your thoughts on AGMs? Yeah, certainly. So the University of Miami is a private university in, in Coral Gables, Florida. We are what we call an academic medical school. So we have not only higher education side, we also run three hospitals and have a large health system. I'm the CIO and treasurer at the university. So I basically wear two hats every day. The first one is, you know, traditional treasury. So managing the capital structure, liquidity management, so on and so forth. And then the second hat is investing. So I'm in charge of investing all the university's assets. So that's about a $1.1 billion endowment, about a $900 million defined benefit pension plan, about another billion for short-term working capital. And so, you know, with respect to the the investment side of the house, you know, we've had a handful of AGMs, you know, over the last six to nine months, you know, from private equity to more conferences such as the Milken Conference. And I'd say, you know, my general feedback is that they're doing the best they can in a virtual environment. I think we've all heard, you know, taglines like Zoom fatigue and things like that. But I think what I've found is that the most effective way of delivering that content, again, to me as an LP has been sort of a mixture of, you know, pre-recorded type content mixed with, with live content. And I'll give a couple examples, Jordan. So there was one AGM where it was all live, right? And it was great. But as you can imagine, you know, while Zoom has been great and WebEx and all these other things that they're still working out the bugs. So you know, it seemed a little bit jittery, you know, they couldn't cut over as quickly. It just wasn't as maybe clean and professional as I'm sure they wanted it to be. And, you know, for me, that that wasn't the biggest of the deal, but, you know, it was clear that it seemed like it was in the infancy stage. Then on the other side of the spectrum, there was the fully recorded, fully produced, edited, that for me, the markets are moving so quickly day to day. Who knows how long before this event they recorded it, but for example, and I'll do my best to keep it as no name as possible, they had recorded something where there was a CEO of a company whose company happened to be going public on that day when the interview was airing and it was going gangbusters. And he was just talking, you know, he was like, oh, you know, this, you know, this, we're really excited about this or that. It was clear that they couldn't pivot quickly enough to talk about what was happening right this time. You know, why do you think that, you know, you guys are, you know, your socks going through the roof. How do you feel about it? So on and so forth. So, you know, I have seen some funds do a really good job of a mixture of, okay, we're going to start off with some recorded content, you know, make sure we hit all the highlights that we, we as investors want to know, right? So how has COVID been? You know, what are your returns looking like? What are multiples? What are new, new updates mixed with great content in the form of live interviews, right? Well, live being through Zoom, because I know for me, that's usually where I get the most information. It's, you know, I 
put through a pitch deck Jordan, to figure out power returns and an update. But I really want to hear from you know senior professionals or you know external guests about you know what's going on in the world that we live in today. How long have you found is a good length for a AGM? And have you seen any be split up for two days? Yeah. So for example, the Milken conference, I think did it over almost two weeks, right? So they ran from call it nine to call it three or four, and they just ran it for way longer. Whereas they used to do it in three days, right? It was sometimes four or five days if you include the weekend. And I thought that was interesting, right? Because you can really pick and choose, you know, where do you want to go that day to see it, right? Versus when you're in person, you have to usually sacrifice going to one panel because you were being pulled over here. And then plus you had dinners and you had networking and stuff like that. So you really got drained over three days. I would say the most effective is usually over one day. I'd say one or two days, right? Call it half day each because I think an hour or two at, at any one point on just one subject tends to be a little tedious. Maybe it's just my ADD or yeah, because I'm a millennial that I'm like, all right, let me start checking my email on my phone. You know, somewhere in sort of the hour long for, again, for one subject, you know, for me, at least tends to be the most effective and call it over days. So most of the people who are going to listen to this, Connor, are like in the private equity buyout space. And what I have seen are AGMs that are, you know, two to four hours long, and they will start off by doing a firm overview that might be pre-recorded. And then they will go into, you know, fund three pre-recorded where they have one person on the side talking about the deck that's on the other side of the screen. After that pre-recording of the fund overview, then each port co, they will do live Q&A to supplement that pre-recording. Do you prefer them to do live discussion about the PowerPoint slide and it's worth the trade-off of the technical glitches or do you like the pre-recorded overview followed by the live Q&A? What are your thoughts around that? I actually prefer the latter, Jordan. I think that's a nice mixture of, okay, here's a virtual you know, recording of what exactly do you want me to know? What do you want me to hear? What's going to be most effective with my time? Because you know, some people, if they go off script, that it could be you know, all of a sudden your two to four hours could be you know, three to five hours, right? Which you know, for people you know, giving up an extra hour can be, can be difficult. So how do I effectively and efficiently get the information and the content that you as a GP want to deliver to me as the LP, while then supplementing any information that I may have and all want to know in terms of Q&A through a live session so that I can sort of raise my hand or send, send a Q&A, sorry, send a Q, sorry, uh, through the chat or whatever format they have. So I really like the in-between. You know, I've heard both sides of the story, but I like a little bit of the Goldilocks. Um, approach to it. Would you rather have a pre-recording sent maybe a couple of days or a week beforehand, so then the hour or two hours is more Q&A focused, or do you have you not really found that need? Or is it okay to have everything on AGM day, but then you have the one-on-ones with the GPs afterwards? You know, what do you want as an LP and to get the most out of that period of review for the GP? Yeah, I think if you send the videos before, the, the, at least, again, I'm speaking for myself, I'm going to be multitasking, 
right? You know, realistically, I'm going to have it on in the background. I may not even watch it, right? Until I've blocked out that piece of time in my calendar to focus on that, I'm likely not going to, I'm probably going to be doing two or three things. So I prefer to have it on that day. Again, you think about it mentally as if I'm going to this conference in person, right? So I'm going to be doing this for that time. And then the reason why I don't really necessarily want to use all that time for Q&A is because I think we've all been on enough investor relation calls and where nobody wants to raise their hand, right? So you know, I would say that it's more times than not that people are not, you know, there's not sort of this free flowing conversation of Q and A that's going to last two hours versus, you know, a handful of questions. Maybe they throw in some pre pre collected questions. So, you know, I, I think if, if anybody really wants to follow up on a one-on-one, we can, you know, I'm sure the GP is always going to be open to doing a call or a zoom right after, but I think trying to condense it, you know, have it purely dedicated for those two to four to this cause has been the most effective way to get in my mind. Now I'm thinking about a more creative idea, but it's also a little bit more risky for the GP, which is having a structure where, let's say the first half is webinar format when you go through funds, port codes. What about the idea of having almost like a Zoom meeting format with call it, you know, 25 selected, and you know, it doesn't have to be the Brady Bunch of LPs, but you have call it a small group where it is live Q&A. Now it's a risk for the GP because they can't think you know, as thoughtfully through things, but it's a way to engage the LPs more. What is the difference potentially between that type of format versus the submit your questions through the Q&A webinar feature and when you get to them? Like, what's the differential between those? I think from an LP, we get way more of it in that format that you mentioned, Jordan. So for example, Milken Conference has been doing sort of small roundtable discussions. Um, where, you know, it's a break room of five to seven, you know, mixture of GPs and LPs, you know, obviously you go in knowing what the topic is, and then you have sort of a group leader sort of to help facilitate the conversation. But that's been the most helpful because again, mm. you're flowing conversation, right? You're talking to your peers, you're talking to the GP, it pivots here, it pivots there, and you write it. It is a little bit of a risk to the GP if their leaders may be aren't ready for a question or say the wrong thing. But in Ideally, in those situations, you're not being recorded. You know that it's sort of everyone has to participate. Your video has to be on. And it's really just a better way to to exchange data. I think for me, those have been the most fruitful conversation in any of these. And I I guess it also comes with the presumption that it's not as of a, a hostile LP base. Right. <laughs> in terms of, uh, that also goes to like, what is the quality of the relationship between the GP and the LP, you know, built mm-hmm. over time. I do mm-hmm. like the point that you mentioned, like maybe at that section, turn off the recording to say, right. this is off the record. The reason why we are doing this is because we want to have a quality discussion, not with just one, but a small group of LPs about some topics that are important to you. You know, we are taking a risk by doing this, but like quality discussion is the key paramount here. It's interesting. I like, I really like that idea about turn off the recording for that section, maybe shifting over to, you know, trends in the industry. I have seen some articles come out recently with you discussing diversity and endowments and pensions. So I just want to kind of hear your thoughts about, you know, some macro trends you are seeing within the LP universe with institutional LP universe within pensions endowments as it relates to diversity and inclusion? And what are some important facts and figures and trends that people should know about? Yes, certainly. So I think ESG as a whole, right, has been a trend that we've been hearing about for several years now. But I'd say probably the E was probably elevated the most in the past, right? So focusing on the environmental, divesting fossil fuels, so on and so forth. I think 
you know, this year specifically with a lot of the racial tension and racial injustice, but things like the George Floyd killing, Breonna Taylor, so on and so forth. I think the S or the social part of it has really sort of risen to the forefront or risen to, to sort of, you know, what people are focusing on. So I think, you know, in the endowment, foundation, public pension, pension world, institutional LP, I think people have been moving forward on the diversity front, right? I think, you know, trying to increase, you know, the percentage of their portfolios that are with minority women-owned businesses. I mean, I know that the Knight Foundation has put out a study from 2019 that said, of the $69 trillion asset management industry, just 1.3% of that is minority or woman owned, right? So I think, you know, that's just to show you sort of that disparity, right? You know, not even disparity, just almost negligible amount that's with minority or woman owned firms. So I think what you've seen is sort of public pensions have probably gotten to the dance first. They, they have addressed it. They probably have thresholds or different ways to screen managers where, where diversity is thrown into the mix along with, you know, all the usual things like risk and return. Uh, so on and so forth. I'd say foundations were probably next to the dance or call it 1A, 1B, just because, you know, they have a specific foundation with a specific, you know, purpose. So it'd be sort of, you know, they would be contradicting themselves if they were not, you know, at least focusing on something, especially if it's given the purpose of foundations. I say lastly, and last of the dance is probably us, which is the private endowment community. You know, so for example, two congressmen, uh, Congressman Cleaver and Congressman Kennedy, wrote a letter back in July to the top 25 endowments saying, urging them to, to publish their diversity data. And there's no place that I've seen at least where specifically private endowments have actually published that data. I'd say, 20, I think 24 out of the 25 responded. I think Notre Dame was the only one that didn't, you know, with their take on how they think about diversity, which was monumental, right? That represents, you know, trillions, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of capital, right? It's the Harvards and the Princetons and the MITs, so on and so forth in terms of information. Now, you know, everyone, it wasn't sort of an even playing field, sort of how they defined it, but but that was huge, right? And I thought, I know for us at the University of Miami, we see it as part of our social and racial, you know, justice being in our broader value system, right? As a university, we want to serve a diverse base, of, you know, we have a diverse base of students, we serve a di diverse community, and we would be, you know, remiss if we didn't have that reflected in our investment portfolio. How do you think about, you know, what that kind of specifically means? Mm -hmm. So, for example, in Q1 2021, we are going to hit a specific goal about listening to pitches from mm -hmm. X amount of minority or women-owned firms or making yeah. specific investments. Like, how do you think about it? And for this next step, and also the broader question is, what is the end state? What's the target end state? Yeah, so we think about it across several different angles. So one is engagement. Right. So we think, you know, we have all over $3 billion of AUM, you know, we want to go and engage our current managers, right. And say, Hey, how do you guys think about this? What's your diversity policies? What are your targets? What are, how can we measure you? Right. Because we think that's going to be one of the biggest ways that we can affect change in the industry. It's if, you know, everyone is going to BlackRock and saying, Hey, this is a priority for us. And BlackRock and, you know, firms like KKR have done a great job, at least pushing forward. We're not where we need to be. But letting them know that you know trillions and trillions of dollars of capital want to prioritize that. So I think you know Bill Gates wrote an article about why he thinks divestment is not effective. Is that he thinks engagement and actually putting capital behind things are, are the best. And he was talking more on environmental. But you know we agree with that. You know the second thing is 
you know, access to capital, right? So I think you touched on the Jordan, you know, us making sure that we're including a diverse crop of managers when we're looking at new strategies going forward. So if we're looking at a fixed income manager, making sure that, you know, a handful of those people that are being put in front of us are going to be minority women. And I think lastly is, and you touched on it, is shooting for some sort of target, right? And I think, you know, that allows you to be intentional, right? In terms of how you're allocating and how you're committing capital and how you're managing your portfolio. But then having that number is going to also hold you accountable, right? So you want to set it aspirationally, knowing that you may hit it, right? You may, you may blow through it. You want it to just be a floor, but if, you know, whatever variance is, right, in private equity and hedge funds, and everyone can, can attest to this, you want to do attribution, right? Why did we fall short, right? Well, we looked at 500 hedge funds, we just couldn't find one that met our risk returns threshold, right? Okay, well, let's give that advice to the LPs who didn't meet it. Or we blew through it because, you know, we found all these people, you know, in this room that we never looked at before. So those are the three lenses that we've been looking at it. And I think different endowments have been doing maybe one or two or the three in different combinations. I think we're still formulating it at the U, but I think, you know, when we do land on it, I think we'll be one of the first ones that's sort of attacking it from all three at the same time. It's interesting because it makes us wonder, like, what is the target in state? What mm-hmm. is the actual percentage of, you know, minority or women CIOs at endowments? Right. Is it 10%? Is it 25? Is it 50? Is it 75? I, what I does that mean? Way lower. I think, you know, based on, you know, Charles Carina put the newsletter and when Kim Liu was promoted to CIO at, well, not promoted, but hired at Columbia to be their CIO and CEO, I believe from Carnegie, he put out a newsletter and just, you know, searching, okay, well, what, what does it look like in endowments specifically? And I think his database was like 650, you know, but that included pensions and foundations and stuff like that. But when all was said and done, I think there were four, maybe five black CIOs and endowments. Yeah. Right? So it's a very, very small percentage. I was talking with somebody at a firm in Chicago and they said, I don't know what the in-state is because we're so focused on there's the big problem and it just mm-hmm. has to be better than what it is right now. Mm-hmm. And it seems like step one is just everyone needs to get the messaging out. And like you were saying, engagement with the GPs, we have to do something. Let's work collaboratively. And then yeah. once we get to that next step, whenever that is, call it a year from now, then we have more data to say, okay, well, right. let's kind of think about what it actually means now that we're past the discovery phase, the discovery changes. How do you think maybe specifically within VC Mm. and earlier stage, and I'm referencing women in VC, there's this website, I'm friends with Jessica Peltz, who is the one of the co-founders of it. And they had this new article that came out called the untapped potential women-led funds. And Mm. one of the kind of calls to action in there that they're basically saying is that the check sizes for LPs are way too big to fund women-led VC firms, and that might also go onto the buyout side, but maybe specifically within the venture community, do you have any data readily available or just maybe from a high level, is this a priority or is it kind of bucketed in the same thing as minority and women owned general percentage? I didn't know if you had any kind of thoughts or maybe data around like the VC community. I don't have it at the tip of my, of my fingers, Jordan. And I know Crunchbase just put out a report on a lot of, you know, what's the percentage of 
of entrepreneurs that are women or women or, or minority? How are they funded versus, you know, maybe white males? Mm. And as you can imagine, the number is extremely low. And I'd say it's even lower than, than in the private equity space or, you know, call it the finance space. And, you know, they know that they are on our list of people that we engage as well in terms of show us your breakdown. Because I think you touched on it. You know, I think progress, it's all relative, right? I mean, I think we all want to move forward in this direction. So when we're thinking about, okay, how do we measure progress? You know, if you were at, you know, one person in the senior management realm and the next year you at three and you triple it, I mean, that's good progress. Now, look, you may not be where you need to be yet, which might be 10, might be 15, whatever it might be, but we want to see you progressing in the right direction. And I think, you know, it's going to be attacking it from all angles, right? There's the pipeline issue, right? So like, what's your total makeup of just employees, right? That might include admins, that might include analysts, that might include a lot of different people, but then it also needs to be from the top down. So of your either ownership, board, you know, C-suite, what does that makeup look like? And then hopefully if you're lowering it from both angles, you get to hopefully some some sort of medium. But I think it's going to be from multiple angles that you're going to have to attack. It. Let's kind of shift more personally for this. How do you conceptualize race? And what are maybe some misconceptions and just kind of what have you experienced in your career, you know, through starting at JP Morgan to where you're at now, just interested to hear kind of how you think about this. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think, look, I I grew up between Trinidad and Georgia, right? So, you know, younger years, mostly in in Trinidad and back and forth in Georgia. So quite frankly, my concept of race is different from other African-Americans, right? And that, I grew up and I'm a big, big proponent of mentorship, right? I think when kids see, they can, they can emulate. And I think it becomes ingrained in their head what I can be. And it's not out of this world. I think you can be the president or you can be a lawyer or a doctor, so on and so forth. So I grew up around, you know, black lawyers, black doctors, but also white lawyers and just everyone together. So, you know, my mindset has always been, you know, I can be anything I'd, I'd like to be. Or once I got to the U.S., that was my mindset, right? So I, I didn't come in with sort of thinking that I was less than or that, you know, I, I wasn't supposed to be here. I, I fully expected that I was supposed to be at boarding school or at Amherst or JP Morgan. And I didn't have that imposter syndrome. And I think for me, I think because I had that mindset, I was lucky enough to have these experiences. You know, places like JP Morgan were great to me. I think opportunities, you know, equal to other people. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there were things that were going on or comments that were said that probably were a little bit over the line, but ultimately I had a phenomenal experience in JP Morgan. Now, I can't say that was the same for everyone, right? There were other African-Americans or black people who may not have had the upbringing that I had, who may not have been, you know, at a boarding school or like Amherst and have gotten sort of used to being, you know, in those settings that, that got to JP Morgan or other places like that. And just kept digging themselves in a hole, right? And and I think it's a two-way street. I think, you know, the firms need to do a better job of, I think they do a great job, Jordan, of getting talent and putting them on the doorstep, right? I think they're great programs like like SEO or MLT uh, or Twigo that get the talent. But I think there needs to be more done with once you get them there is how do you ensure that they're not falling behind just purely on a cultural, right? Because I don't think that it's, it's on an intellectual level or that that's a dearth of that. So for me personally, you know, it's been, been a great career for me. I'd say, you know, my biggest, you know, if I can think about one, one thing that always stands out to me, it's, it was more on the systemic standpoint where, you know, I was in boarding school 
and I was being discouraged from applying to top schools, right? So the Ivy's a top liberal school. And I was lucky enough to have, you know, family friend who, who worked at a university to say, no, actually, you're exactly what they want, right? You have really high GPA, you play three sports, you're involved in the community. That's what universities want, right? So I don't know how many people or kids or underrepresented kids are going to have that person to step in and say, hey, don't worry about what this institution is saying be doing this. And that's why I'm so passionate about mentorship now, Jordan, especially working at a university. It's, you know, people spent all this time with me, coaching me through these things, enlightening me, making sure that I knew sort of the way to sort of be as best as I could be, that I'm trying to just pass along to as many kids and, and people as I can. So what would your message be to the maybe a 20-year-old who's at a historically Black college and they are, you know, going asking the same questions that you're kind of mentioning about your experience. Like, what would your advice be to them and kind of where you're at now, you know, in your career and being a chief investment officer of a private university with $3 billion under management? What would you say to them? Yeah, I'd say, look, be aggressive, right? I'd say get out there, be vocal, ask questions. I'm a big believer that, you know, there's always something that could be a common ground that you never know might spark a mentor-mentee relationship. And I think, you know, the most effective people in business had mentors, right? And, you know, for me, some of my mentors didn't look like me. They weren't from where I was from. They weren't my, my same, same age bracket. But we found some sort of common, you know, interest that besides sort of, you know, you have to do a great job. I think that goes without saying, right? So this is assuming that you're top of your class and you're hard worker and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, to really navigate business and to navigate finance, I think you're going to need somebody to help say, hey, don't step on that landmine, you know, go this way, zig that way, zag that way, because, you know, I'll speak to, to investment banking because that's my experience. You know, something as little as double side printing a document or stapling a document can have a lasting effect on how a managing director sees you as a person. Like legit, it's so dumb. Yeah. Right? But like, <laughs> I literally had somebody say, hey, do not double print this for this person. They will. And I'm like, wait, what are you talking about? It's like, they hate double-sided presentations. And like, as dumb as it sounds, and when I, you know, sort of rose through the ranks of JP Morgan, and all of a sudden, I'm in the review sessions for this analyst, and you hear some of the things that MDs are saying, it's like, well, yeah. Have one interaction with them. Like, why are you dinging them from being top of their class to being, you know, an E to an M plus or whatever, you know, the ranking system is because it was in black and white versus color. You know what I mean? So yeah. back to your question, <laughs> it's putting yourself out there. Do not be turned away because this person doesn't look like you, doesn't speak like you, or maybe even has different views. It's, you just never know where that mentor is going to come from. I think I'm that river guide. Uh, that's going to be a really, really important part about being successful in, in, in anything you do. Last question is, you were a sprinter. Uh, one of your three sports uh, was being a sprinter. When you look at how you have evolved as a professional, do you think that you were a sprinter and now are a sprinter? Do you, are you another sport? Are you another still in track and field? Just, what are your thoughts about kind of drawing this parallel between you being a sprinter in sports and how you evolved right. in your career and how you view your day to day? Well, I'd like to think that I've, you know, developed a couple of the skills and maybe more of like a decathlon athlete now, right? With a little bit of everything, but you know, I think now I don't, 
And I think especially my current job as managing an endowment, you know, we think extremely long-term, right? We're managing money in perpetuity for our current students, their kids, and, you know, their kids, kids, so on and so forth. So for me, you know, I've definitely transitioned more to a marathon runner, to use that analogy. It's had to take a difference in mindset, right? And I was trained, you know, in classic corporate finance investment banking, which is get the deal. Transactional. Transactional, get it done. If, if it wasn't done, get it out your mind onto the next one, right? Now, whereas in, in endowment management and asset management, it is, you know, it's long relationships. It's a long time horizon. It's it's letting things unfold and not being discouraged if, again, it goes right when it should have gone left, knowing that you're still on track to get to your final destination. So, but now, you know, I do a little bit of shot put and high jump and, and other things as well, but, but definitely uh, more of a marathon runner now. And, I'm- <laughs> and in this cli- climate, we might be ultra marathoners, 100 miles or more. <laughs> we're buckled in and, you know, I'm on my standing desk now because I think, you know, we're, we're buckled in for a little bit longer in terms of, you know, this, this work from home thing. It's awesome. We've covered a lot of ground. We'll have to find episode three very soon to do. I'm around. Anything for you guys. Let me know. Awesome. Thanks so much.